please stand for the reading, which is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 40. It can be found on page 1007 of your pew Bible and also on the screens. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in the foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars in heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeting them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents 
because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is God's word. Keep your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 11, and let's uh, seek the Lord together in prayer. Lord, what an incredible chapter. What a remarkable testimony of not just your people, but of you. Lord, help us see the unseeable this morning as we look into this text. Help us to see you in your power, in your majesty, in your worthiness. And may our hearts be encouraged to walk in faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you motivate people to do hard things? To stick with something when it's difficult, when the odds are against them, when they're not very close to being finished and they would just like to give up? One of the tried and true tactics is to tell a story. The coach gathers his players around himself in the locker room just before the game and tells them about the 2004 Red Sox and how they were down by three games in the playoffs 
only to come back and win the next four against their bitter rivals, the Yankees, and then go on to win the World Series for the first time in 86 years. The classroom guest tells the students about her experiences as an African-American woman during segregation. Now, she wasn't allowed to drink from the same bubbler as a white person was, or use the same bathroom, or attend the same schools, or attend even the same churches. But how the black community came together at great personal cost. Being yelled at, spit at, harassed, arrested, some of them lynched in order to stand against 200 years of oppression and begin to see a country change. The missions class assigns everyone to read the biography of Adoniram and Anne Judson, how they willingly subjected themselves to the hardships of and sufferings of missionary life, to the exposure uh, to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death, all for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for us, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. How do you motivate someone to do hard Things against all odds in the face of opposition with no guaranteed result in sight. You tell a story. One way is to tell stories. Stories of others who've gone before us, who faced similar or even greater hardships, and how they persevered through uncertainty, through opposition and danger so that we might do the same. And that's what we have before us in Hebrews chapter 11, which is without doubt the most uh, famous chapter in the book of Hebrews, the great cloud of witnesses of chapter 11. As we've noted throughout the series, the author's aim throughout this entire book has been to help God's people finish well to hold fast to the gospel and their faith in Jesus all the way to the end, despite opposition, despite temptation, despite others who would try and pressure them to go a different direction. And in the first section of this book, he, he sought to convince us that there's nothing better to hold on to, that there is nothing better than Jesus. And now in the final chapters, he's showing us what it looks like to hold on to Jesus, what it will take to finish the race well. And as we saw last week, uh, it looks like putting our confidence into action. That's the first thing. Since we have confidence that Jesus really is better, that in him we have access to God in heaven and an advocate before the Father, therefore, to put that confidence into action, to draw near to God, to, uh, to hold fast to our faith in the gospel, to stir up one another to love and good works, to put that confidence into action. That's, that's where he started in this larger section of application. But that's not always easy. 
it's much easier said than done. Especially when the road is long and hard, and there are all sorts of people trying to lead us astray, and the end is nowhere in sight. We have no clue how much progress we've actually made. And so at the end of chapter 10, uh, he emphasized the necessity of persevering faith. He quoted Habakkuk chapter 2, how the righteous shall live by faith, and reminds us that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And it's this topic of faith that he now elaborates on for an entire chapter, helping us see the necessity, the difficulty, and the fuel of persevering faith. And he does so, he elaborates on and teaches us about faith primarily by telling a story, or rather a thread of stories of those who've gone before us, stories about the necessity, the difficulty, and the fuel of persevering faith in order to encourage us to finish well, to follow the example of those who've gone ahead. We'll start in verses 1 through 7 with the necessity of persevering faith. Why would something like faith be so utterly necessary if we're going to finish well? Well, he begins by describing the nature of faith. Uh, What are we talking about? Specifically, by describing it as it relates to hope, assurance, and conviction. Hope, assurance, and conviction. It's really easy to hope for something. You know, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to get our hopes up. Or, and, and, it's, and it's pretty easy to imagine an outcome that you can't see yet. It's a lot harder for that hope or that imagined outcome to be little more than wishful thinking. For that to happen, you need assurance of that hope and you need conviction of that unseen outcome if you're really going to be motivated to pursue it, if it's going to be more than wishful thinking. You know, for instance, uh, we are now coming into the final weeks of the school year with all of the year-end projects and all of the final exams. It's easy to hope for a good grade on a final test. Or to imagine an A+. But if I lack the assurance that I could actually do well on that test, or if I lack the conviction that that test actually matters, then it's hard to be motivated to study. If it's impossible for me to do better than a D, or if this test is just filling time until summer break, then hoping for an A is wishful thinking. There's no assurance, there's no conviction In the same way, if we're going to persevere and finish well in our pursuit of Christ, we need more than imagination, more than wishful thinking. We need assurance of what we're hoping in. We need conviction of what we cannot yet see. And according to Hebrews, faith is that assurance and that conviction. It takes hope. It takes unseen outcomes, and it anchors them in God himself. That's what faith does. 
But what do we mean by faith? Even there, that phrase gets used in all sorts of ways uh, today. When the author of Hebrews talks about the necessity of faith, he's not talking about faith in some sort of kind of generic, spiritualized term, uh, the way we often encounter it today, that it's nice to have some sort of faith or, or that your faith is important to you, faith in some generic sense. He's talking in a very specific sense about faith. Faith, the faith that he's been trying to convince us of throughout the entire book. Faith in the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ and accomplished salvation for us through him. It's a very specific faith. And it matters what your faith is in because faith is only as good as the object in which you trust. I mean, faith in something that's not actually true does you no good. There's no virtue in faith in something that's not true or not really powerful. I, I might believe with all of my heart that if I flap my arms enough, I can fly. But no matter how strongly I believe it, no matter how true I believe it, that faith will not keep me from breaking my neck if I jump off of a building and try it. So faith is only as good as what you're putting your faith in. There's no virtue just in a generic faith. It's faith in the God who's revealed himself in Jesus. And faith of that nature, that gives us assurance of what we're hoping for. That gives us conviction of what we can't see because I don't have to be able to see the outcome if I know God can see it. He's got it. I simply have to trust him. And that's the nature of faith. It is trusting God for what we cannot see. He illustrates that in verse 3. He says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen, everything we see around us, was not made out of things that are visible. There's this unseen element, this unseen component, which does not mean that faith is just blind. Sometimes, you know, uh, the more skeptical side of us will, will write off faith as just kind of a fairy tale or a blind obedience. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's no evidence. I mean, you look around, there's evidence everywhere for God in his creation. All of this had to come from somewhere. You know, the massive expanse of the universe, the intricacy of, of neutrons and, and protons and electrons and how it all works together to support life. That doesn't just happen. It comes from somewhere. It happened, we know, by God's word. And we know that by faith. There's an unseen element. We're trusting God for what we cannot see, but even though we can't see it, doesn't mean it's blind and foolish. Because again, God can see it. He is in control of it. He has the power to answer it, and he has a reputation that we can trust. He's the anchor. He's the assurance. He is the conviction. And those who placed their faith in God in the past were commended for it. Faith is the mark of the faithful, of those who finish well, and it's the means of their commendation. It was 
by faith that Abel's worship was acceptable to God and he was commended as righteous. It was by faith that Enoch was delivered from death and commended as one who had pleased God. It was by faith that Noah obeyed God even when it didn't make sense, even with something he couldn't see, this unseen warning. And he was commended as righteous even while his faith condemned the world. Each of them had assurance of what they hoped for and conviction of what they could not see. They had confidence in a promised outcome through their faith in God. And it's actually impossible to please God without faith. That's what he tells us in verse 6. And faith, excuse me, and without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So again, our faith is quite specific here. Now he gives us two things that, that we need to believe here if our faith is actually going to anchor our hope and conviction. First, we must believe that God exists or that God is, that he is there and that he is who he says he is. We must believe God. And second, we must believe that God rewards those who seek him. That our pursuit of God is not in vain. That there is an inheritance waiting for us. A divine rest, an unshakable kingdom. An incomparable reward. And we're going to come back to that part a little bit later. But faith is utterly necessary for finishing well. Utterly necessary. Faith specifically in God himself. Without it, any hope that we have of this turning out well, or any imagined outcome of what we think we might hope to see on the other side, is wishful thinking. If it's not grounded in and driven by faith in the God we meet in the Bible. But just because faith is necessary doesn't mean it's easy. And that's what most of this chapter is about. Not just how important faith is, but what faith looks like amid life's difficulties, the difficulty of persevering faith. In verses 8 to 38, we, we see this thread of short stories continue to unfold, each one illuminating the nature and necessity of faith for finishing well, especially when it's hard and the prize is really far off. In verses 8 to 22, we see the faith of Abraham, Sarah, and their descendants. In verses 23 to 31, we see the faith of Moses and those who are entering the land. And then in verses 32 to 38, we have the faith of judges, kings, and prophets. And, and honestly, we could spend weeks just reflecting on each of those stories and the encouragement that comes from each of them. But we can also identify three general situations among these stories, situations that are common among those who've gone before us and still common among those who seek God today, in which faith is utterly crucial, facing unknown results, impossible promises, and certain danger. Those are three common situations we see in this portrait of faith. We're going to look at each one of those. First, unknown results. At some point, 
in your walk with God, you're going to come to a place where you're called to move forward without any clear picture of what's ahead. It's part of the journey. To follow God in the face of unknown results. Answering a call to missions, whether short-term or long-term. Finding out that it's not just my daughter going to Haiti, I'm going too. Taking a new job. Staying put in what feels like a dead-end job. Starting a family. Doing foster care. Starting a spiritual conversation with a longtime friend or neighbor. We may be very convinced of God's call in that situation, but entirely unclear of where it will take us or what the results will be like, which is scary. It's scary because we like to know where we're going because not knowing means we're not in control. But consider the story of Abraham and his faith in the face of unknown results. We actually get two stories about Abraham uh, in this chapter. The first about his call in Genesis 12 to leave a land that he knew and a people that he knew and go to a place that he doesn't know. A place God would show him. I mean, I don't even like to put the car in gear until I know every single step of the directions to where I'm going to get. To, to, for someone to get in and say, just drive and I'll tell you how to get there along the way, that's not how I roll. And so, I mean, what do you do with that? Abraham, what does he do? He goes. He obeys. By faith, he went out not knowing where he was going. And guess what? God was faithful in his leading and guidance. God was faithful in what he provided. We know the end of the story. We, we get to read ahead. And if God was faithful to Abraham amid unknown results, can't we trust him to be faithful to us when he calls us to step out but he doesn't show us what's ahead. The second story is harder than the first, in my opinion. In verses 17 to 19, God tests Abraham and asks him to offer up Isaac, his only son, the one through whom God promised to make Abraham into a great nation and to bless all nations through him. God asks him to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, You read Genesis 22, where the story comes from, you know it's a test. God never intended for Abraham to actually do that. But, I mean, you you put yourself in Abraham's shoes. This is crazy. This makes no sense. I mean, you promised to bless me through Isaac. You miraculously brought him into the world, and now you want me to take him out? Makes no sense at all. Just like it might not make sense to leave a thriving job at the height of a flourishing career to enter the mission field or to go into ministry. You worked so hard your whole life, the right schools, the right interviews, the right internships to get to where you are, and now you're just supposed to leave it? Why would God call you to leave it? 
or to move your kids out of a top-rated school system in order to be part of a church plant in an underprivileged area. That doesn't make any sense. We bought this house because of the school system, and now God would call us to leave it? Doesn't always make sense. But Abraham obeys. Faced with two seemingly incompatible words of God, that Isaac will become a great nation and that he is to kill Isaac, Abraham reasons that God must be planning to raise him from the dead. That's the only way forward I could see for these two things. And so he obeys in the face of unthinkable, unknown results, and God honors his faith. He preserves Isaac, and he fulfills his promise, because Abraham trusted God. Similarly, Isaac, without any ability to actually see the future, passes that promise of God on to Jacob and Esau. And Jacob on to Joseph and his sons, and Joseph to the future generations of Israel. Faith amid unknown results. A second common scenario among these stories is faith in the face of impossible promises. God says to Sarah, in her old age, that she's going to bear a son. He tells the people of Israel, look at that sea, march straight into it, it's going to part and let you through. He says again to Israel, march around the city of Jericho seven times and the walls will fall down and you'll have the victory. That's impossible. That doesn't happen, not in any worldly or naturalistic sense. And yet, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land, but when the Egyptians attempted to do the same, they drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. God promised the impossible, and by faith, They saw him do it. Are we willing to trust God in the face of impossible promises today? Promises like, this will end well. Whatever you are experiencing, for a Christian, wherever you are, whatever you're facing, no matter how deep your hurt or discouragement, or frustration is, this will end well. That's a promise from God. And for many of us, that feels impossible. I mean, how can what I've endured, or what I'm still enduring, turn out in any way, shape, or form for good? Or the promise that there is a way out. A way out of sin and temptation. God promises to provide it every time. But that can seem impossible too. I'm in too deep. I want it too much. I'm trapped by others who keep pulling me back in. There's no way I'll ever be free from this sin. It's impossible. But if Sarah 
could trust God to provide a son post-menopause, if Israel could trust God to part the Red Sea and to crumple the walls of Jericho without them lifting a finger, can we not also trust God for the impossible? Redeeming a life of disappointment. Freeing us from sin. Healing what doctors say can't be healed. Raising the dead spiritually. That's impossible. You want to you see an impossible promise come true? The fact that you're a Christian, if you are one, that's an impossible promise. Because dead people don't come back to life and they don't raise themselves. But God does the impossible. We have to believe. The third situation that comes up again and again in the stories of Hebrews 11, and one of the most common, is faith in the face of certain danger. Following Jesus is not safe. Somehow we've lost that fact in American Christianity. We've allowed ourselves to hijack the American dream baptize it, and then pass it off as God's plan for his people. His promise of abundant life. But following Jesus has never been safe. I mean, you think about it. How did they treat our king, right? They mocked him. They ignored him. They accused him of having a demon. They twisted their own justice system to condemn him. They arrested him. They beat him. They spit on him. And they killed him. And Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's not very safe. And so it is that we will face dangers even today. We will be misunderstood and dismissed. I mean, all you Christians think that you're better than everyone else. Actually, we think we're pretty much as bad as it gets. But there's a Savior who has grace. But as long as that Savior refuses to change his standard of morality and holiness, his people will be misunderstood and dismissed. Mocked and condemned? Passed over for a job because of what you believe? Or the church you attend? Or the ministry you're involved in? Pressured to conform to the world's standards or be punished? I mean, it was not that long ago that the mayor of Boston vowed never to let a Chick-fil-A open in the city Because the owners believe what the Bible teaches about marriage. 2012. Serving a community, providing jobs for people, offering delicious tasting food. None of that matters if you're on the wrong side of morality. Following Jesus is not safe. And amid those dangers we will be tempted to look for heroes who can protect us on earth. People we can see with our own eyes. We can't, can't see God, but if I have someone here I can see who's promised to protect me, if I just 
put my allegiance in with them, that's a huge temptation when we reckon with the danger of following Jesus. After centuries of being the privileged faith in America and now watching that slip away, it's tempting to want to look to people with power to make Christianity safe again. Even if it costs us our actual Christian witness. Just one example. Uh, White evangelicals in America are currently the least likely demographic to approve of welcoming refugees in the U.S., Think about that. Think about that. No other demographic in the country has a lower view of welcoming the stranger who's fleeing for their safety than white evangelicals right now. And it's not like this is just politics. The Bible commands us to love our neighbor, to love the stranger and the foreigner among us. For we were once strangers too, and still are as we wait for our future heavenly home. And so so why are so many so ready to align themselves with power and policies that stand in such clear contradiction to our Christian witness? Fear. Fear for our safety. But following Jesus isn't safe. What God calls us to is faith. Faith that refuses to give way to fear and instead trusts God for what we cannot see. Faith like that of Moses' parents, who by faith were not afraid of the king's edict and hid their child. A faith like Moses who refused to stay safe by aligning himself with those in power, but instead chose to be mistreated with his people. He could have had it all. A faith like the judges, kings, and prophets, who by faith experienced victory in the face of danger. I mean, listen to how it's described. They conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. I mean, you think of Samson and David and Daniel. They quenched the power of fire. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They escaped the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Think of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. In the face of danger, they saw victory by faith. But you know what else they experienced in the face of danger? They endured suffering by faith as well. Some were tortured. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Following Jesus is not safe. God calls us to faith. And so what 
What in the world could fuel that kind of faith? I mean, it's utterly necessary. We get that, right? We see that here. If we're going to finish well, you've got to have faith in order to not give up in the face of uncertainty, in the face of impossible promises or certain danger. But what is it that actually fuels it? Well, that brings us to the third and final point the fuel of persevering faith. And it brings us full circle, clear back to what we read earlier in verse 6, that whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. What could fuel men and women in the face of great opposition, surrounded by danger, filled with uncertainty, to press on and not give up, even when the end is nowhere in sight, according to Hebrews 11, it's the promise of a better reward. A reward better than what this world can give. And we see that sprinkled throughout these stories, that what fueled the persevering faith of these saints was the better reward that they're looking forward to. I mean, why did Abraham trust God and go to a place that he did not know. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And the author clarifies what he means by that in verses 14 to 16. He's not just talking about a parcel of land in the Middle East. His sights are on something bigger. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In Jesus, we have a better reward. A better reward. A better country a heavenly kingdom that nothing in this world can compare to. There is a day coming when there will be no more uncertainty. There will no longer be anything to fear. No danger. No more tears. No more sadness. No more hunger or fighting or sin or evil. A day when our bodies will no longer be subject to decay or disease or death, but they will be raised like Jesus' glorious body, and we will truly and perfectly bear the image of the God who made us. A day when all God's impossible promises will finally and forever be true. When the home that we've been longing for and dreaming about our whole lives, even though we've never seen it, will be ours forever. A new creation wherein righteousness dwells, where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, because heaven and earth have been married in a new creation. And at the center of it all will be God our Savior. And there will be nothing standing between us. No temple, no veil, no hidden heavenly curtain. Unmediated, intimate, unending 
access to God forever. As we've said several times throughout the book of Hebrews, if we have Jesus, there's nothing that this world can offer and there's nothing this world can take away that can compare to the inheritance we look forward to. Such was Abraham's motivation. That's why he was able to, to pursue. Such was Moses' motivation. I mean, why was he so willing to refuse the safety of Pharaoh's household and be mistreated with God's people? Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He treasured Christ above all things including his safety. And we have a better reward in Jesus. Even Moses knew that. Think about that. I mean, we stand on this side of the cross and resurrection. We can look and see how incredible and beautiful and majestic Jesus is. Moses is standing way back on the other side. He's got a faint imagination and knew even that was better than what he could have gotten from the world. And here's the most remarkable part of these great stories of faith. What we're told in verse 13, that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. So they recognized amid their trials, amid the fear, amid the unknown, that the reward doesn't come in this life. They believed it, they greeted it from afar, and they set themselves to following Christ, knowing that they would finish their race long before the trophies were handed out. And the author reiterates that remarkable fact in the closing verses of the chapter, and then also explains why. Why are the saints still waiting? Verse 39, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Think about that. This cloud of witnesses, this, these great examples who encourage us to run our race with perseverance... Though their race is done, they're still waiting for the prize, the glorification, the resurrection, the new creation, the consummation of all things, because God has chosen to glorify us alongside them. That on the day when Moses and Sarah and Abraham receive their crowns, we'll be standing alongside them receiving ours, along with all who belong to Jesus. In Jesus, we have a better reward. And finishing well requires us to believe that. If we're not convinced that what's coming is better, we will not be motivated to persevere. But faith gives us assurance of our hope and conviction of what we cannot see. So that we're working with much more than wishful thinking. We're working with God. We're resting on God, and faith in God will not disappoint.